This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want your business to have the best opportunity for success? Take a tip from tech industry leader Intel when you move or expand in Ohio. The new Silicon Heartland is the place forward-thinking business leaders find ample talent, a highly ranked business climate, convenient central location, plus an especially low-risk environment for site selection. Where else can you have all the room you need to grow while rubbing elbows with the giants in your industry? Visit successinohio.com today. Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away, like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change. Hey, Ollie. Hey, Dave. How are you? <laughs> I'm great today. I think that's my stock answer, but every day, every day we do one of these podcasts, it brings me joy and happiness. Which is the What Difference Does It Make podcast, and that's yes. that's what brings us so much joy. Are you ready for nothing but a good time? I am so ready for nothing but a good time, yes. Nothing because. nothing with umlauts, like the crew, because this what, the, what is this book about, Holly? What are we going to be talking about today? Okay, well, the name of the book is called Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s American Hard Rock Explosion. This book was written... Hell yeah! <laughs> you can tell what it's going to be about just by the title, obviously. But uh, Richard Beanstalk and Tom Bojor wrote this book, and it's a, an oral history of the 80s rock and roll explosion. And this is a sweet spot for me, so I was so excited to talk to them. I tore into it too. I, I really enjoyed this. This was, <laughs> this was a great read. A lot of bands you remember, a lot of bands you forgot, but still the music now lives on. I mean, Molly Crew goes on tours and they play stadiums and it's still, it, this music lives on and on and on. Come on, Guns N' Roses, Poison. Yeah. I know. This is your, <laughs> this is you. You were on the Sunset Strip, yes. passing out flyers, doing the flyering. <laughs> that was a thing. That was, a, that was an actual verb. Flyering. Flyering. You're, you're outing me. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, so yes, let's get into our talk with uh, Rich and Tom. We start off our podcast as Richard Beanstalk tells us about the bolt of lightning that sent him along on this musical journey. My bolt of lightning was looks the kill. What is it about that song or the video? 
I know what it was for me. I mean, I was seven when I saw it. And, you know, I mean, the, the, the song and the, the video are talked about in the book as well. I think that's one of those videos where it, do, it hasn't aged well. You know, I don't know that it actually <laughs> was aged that well at the time either. Like it wasn't something that, that really even in 1983 was, should have been all that acceptable. There was karate um, in it. It was cool, right? Was there was some karate yeah, and there were lots of, you know, flaming pentagrams and, oh yeah, women being <laughs> hunted and herded into cages. But to a, to, to seven-year-old me, like I didn't even notice the women in it. I just noticed the four dudes in like the crazy, you know, Mad Max style outfits and like the, and heard the sound of the music. And I was just like, I was like, this is like, it's like a cartoon come to life. It's like, these guys are like superheroes. And it just totally captured my imagination. I've talked to other people over the years where for them, for whatever reason, that was the video as well. And I think, you know, it speaks to the power of MTV and the visuals of, of, this type of music, but also to, to Nikki six who had, you know, he seemed to know that like, I, I mean, this is talked about in the book as well, that how important it was for them to get these costumes and to have the money and the funding to do these costumes the way they wanted to do them. Because I, I think that he knew the impact it would make and it had that impact on me for sure. Tom, would it for oh. me like I, I was definitely like you know I, I'm a little older than Rich and so I had been you know I definitely bought Come On Feel the Noise when it came out Metal Health and, and Twisted the Twisted Sister record and I really like Def Leppard Pyromania but I have to say like I think it, the moment that I suddenly was all in was like the Poison Talk Dirty to Me video it was like is like there's something about like that moment. I, like I had been into hard rock and I was a guitar player and stuff like that. But like there, that is to me like my eighties heart, like the, 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 the thing that really made me a lifer, put it that way. Mm -hmm. You know, like there, there's a scene in the beginning of that video where CC DeVille is sitting there and he's got one guitar and then there's a trail, uh, like a tractor trailer behind him and a row of guitars all the way down and then he takes the one guitar that he's holding and he like and he looks and he throws it and like that moment right there like i'm getting animated talking about it even now like was me i the first time i saw that i was like that is the coolest guy he has all the guitars i want he throws them he's got like awesome hair like like straight and it's straight um you know like th that like there was something about that that video in that moment that completely captured me and where I was like, I want to be that. Like, like it, it, it was, it was actually pretty profound. Like I, you know, it's funny. I talk about it over and over again, but like that seriously sealed the deal for me.
What about it held up for you and what hasn't held up for you of that music of what, what originally drew you in? Yeah. A lot of it has held up. Like the musicianship has held up. The songs have held up in terms of like the choruses and the, you know, like the hooks upon closer examination, like the lyrics, there are some clever lyrics in some bands and we'll get, you know, and stuff like that. But when you really like, if you start reading the, like when we were looking for a title for the book, we did a deep dive into lyrics for the era. And there, you know, there are a lot of bands that really phoned it in, in that, in that department, Mm -hmm. you know, and then obviously some of the gender politics of it are, you know, sort of questionable. Um, You know, it's weird. And like once in a while, something will dawn on me. Like I was listening to hair nation as I do all the time (laughs) driving, uh, the other day and i don't know rich if you've ever noticed this but like in the, the poison song look but you can't touch came on it's just a song that it's not in their five best but it's a pretty good song the lyrics in that song are really about a you know he brett michaels is with a, a female companion companion somewhere and she's really not interested in going much further and then he hands her a beer and she starts dancing on the bed. And I was like, hmm, questionable. I never drilled down into that one before. Um, things that are problematic are a little problematic to me, but not like game changers, but really just some of the quality of the lyrics. And also I think moving further down the road, some of the stuff that, you know, I was a kid being marketed to. So like some of the later stuff that might really be, formulaic and that I can now recognize as being like retread of a retread of a retread. Mm-hmm. I'm, I think my critical faculties are like a little bit more uh, in tune with that. So like there's some records that I, I've recognized maybe as not as good as I thought they were, but I will, I will, they will remain nameless. <laughs> I was just thinking about this this morning. You both, you both grew up on the East coast. Yeah. Yes. In the book, until you got to the East Coast version of this, which I, you know, this was my thing in the 80s. I was totally unfamiliar with the East Coast version of what was going on on the strip. You you talk about a lot of the bands that didn't make it. How did you get so familiar with them? There were just a few avenues to get this stuff right back then. Mm -hmm. So MTV, of course, and then you had your monthly magazines, your Circus and Hit Parader, and then later Mm -hmm. Rip, and you had Metal Edge. Faces, all this stuff. So I think if you were into this stuff back then, or at least the only way I knew how to approach it and the, my friends who were into it, it was just to absorb every morsel of it that you could. Mm-hmm. You had your bands that you liked and you didn't like, but even the bands that I didn't like, I still read everything I could about them because you'd get your magazine, you would just read it front to back and then you'd right. tear it apart and put it up on your wall. You were like yeah. 10 years old back then. So yeah, I mean, if you yeah. heard, you were seven when Looks That Kill came out. So you mm-hmm. you asked your mom for subscriptions to magazines or did you go? Yeah, or, or I just go to the store every week and buy them but, or every month and buy them. But like, mm-hmm. you know, even from seven years old on, like I learned everything about all these bands and like you just, it was what you studied and basically 
lived. So I think, especially back then, I mean, you have, you kind of know where a band is from, but you don't necessarily, or at least I didn't think so much about who was a West coast band versus an East coast band. You know, I liked Motley Crue and I liked Twisted Sister and it didn't matter to me that one came from here and one came from there. But yeah, you just, you figured out, it's funny, like you think pre-internet, like yeah. how did you learn all this stuff? But like, you just did, you know, and you yeah. just, you found these records and some, I, I mean, I searched for probably 15 years to find the leather records version of Too Fast for Love. <laughs> and when I finally did, it was like, I found it in London, like in like the mid nineties and I couldn't afford to buy it because they were selling it for like hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And I remember begging them to <laughs> play it in the store just because I wanted to hear it because I've been, I've been trying to hear it for most of my life at that point and they wouldn't do it. But then like a few years later, the internet was everywhere and like, I just downloaded it and that was that, you know, and then I heard it, but you just, you just would devote your life to finding out this information and you would. And headbangers ball. I mean, every Saturday, you know, once you're in and you sort of, become a completist like i mean i i could not even venture to tally the number of bands i saw a video on headbangers ball and went and bought the record and you know bands on headbangers ball most of those videos did not transcend into dial mtv and you know that was sort of like let's put it on here and see what happens Mm -hmm. but you know like bands like lily and axe and law and order and things with dangerous toys things that we don't even talk about in the band you know there was this one place that was Headbangers Ball. And if the amount of information that you could get just from faithfully watching that every week, which I did probably for four years in a row. And I think that it's why also people who are into this music who are our age, you know, now it's difficult to talk to people about music, I feel like, because there's a million bands. There were X number of bands that were played on Headbangers Ball over during those years. And like, I know them and Rich knows them and everybody else, because we were all watching the same thing. Mm -hmm. And even the ones that didn't make it, it's like, oh yeah, I love that band. I wonder what happened to them. So there was this common place that you congregated that was curated and much more finite than, than the interwebs of today. So there really was like a, a circumscribed area where you were getting this information. And, and so you can be talking to someone now and, and name drop a band and they'll be like, Oh yeah. You know, and it's still all in our brains because we were just glued to this thing. We're like, what are they going to play next? What are they going to play next? You know, it's very profound to use probably an inappropriate word, but that's how I felt about it. Oh, that's great. Were you able to get WSOU? Did the, oh, yeah. Okay. So yeah. you, you listen to that all the time, both all of you. The time. Oh. I mean, that's where I learned about white lion they, cause they were playing stuff early like that. They, they were early adopters of white Lion. then before they were signed to Atlantic, they were early adopters of kicks. A lot of bands were on, on SOU that then broke out. It's interesting. And then rich, I will shut up. Um, <laughs> we, we, uh, interviewed a woman named Madeline Scarpula, who was a radio promotions person on the East coast for Mercury records. And she said that, you know, oddly New York was not a metal town like New York city and that WSOU, which was, you know, from Seton hall university, like was this bizarre thing where you could market test these records in like a massive area where there was no big station. And it, so it had an, for college radio station, it was amazingly powerful because mm-hmm. it was reaching this huge, densely populated area that did not have a major radio station playing this stuff. So it was a very important thing for the labels. 
Can I ask you a question about just off the topic of bands, but the um, an oral history? Do you find that harder to write than a you know than a different style of book? Was it is it difficult to compile? Would you say? I think that there's just different challenges. I think if anything, a lot of people would just automatically think it's easier to write because you're mm-hmm. not doing as much writing. But I certainly wouldn't say that. I mean, one of the biggest challenges about an oral history is if you want to tell a story, you have to get three, four, five, six people to tell you that yeah. story because you can't just be some per- one person says one thing and then you just let that hang out there. And sometimes you feel like you want to inject your own voice just to explain something to get you over the hump, but you can't do that. So if a story is worthy and valid, and sometimes, I mean, the, the sort of main stories, like, yeah, you'll get different people to talk about them, but if you, once you start getting into these tangents and you find these little nuggets that you really want to explore, those are the ones where it's often hard to find the other players in it. Yeah. But if it's important, then you do and you figure it out. But so that was a big challenge, especially, I mean, Tom and I are both writers. This is what we've been doing for our career. And it's very, it would be very easy for us to just write that part and then get to the next quote. So this is probably the first time where I know, at least for me, I really came upon that sort of challenge where it's like you might just hit a wall until you could find that person that could sort of unlock the next part of that story for you. To go searching for it, to know where to go, to contextualize, you know, the story that you're trying to tell to me, I think it would be a harder, you know, I guess at at first glance, people would think it would be easier, but I think to tell the story, you know, in the way that you're telling it, I think it would be hard, like piecing a puzzle together. One of the stories I did like was, um, come on, feel the noise, like how that came about. You know, the producer said, oh, it just came together. It was perfect. And then you talk to other people and like, no, we want, we want to sabotage this. I mean, can you kind of tell us how, how that uh, kind of laid out? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's sometimes that's the best stuff in an oral history, right? Where your people are sort of contradicting each other yeah. about the same story because uh, they just have totally different viewpoints on what went down. And the, that story is interesting because you do have the story that the band members have always stuck to. And we spoke to Frankie Benali a few times about this before he passed away. And we spoke to Carlos Cabazzo and Rudy Sarzo. The story has always been that they did not want to do this song and that it was kind of foisted upon them and that it becomes this big hit. And you do, you get that sense in the book because the guys in the band do say that to different Frankie, I think is much more adamant about the fact that Kevin Dubrow hated it. And he got mad at Frankie because Frankie played it too well and so on and so forth. But then Spencer Proffer, the producer who sort of masterminded this whole thing and actually did find Quiet Riot when they were called Dubrow and sort of struggling in the clubs and just put them together with this song. Cause he had this vision. He's like, that's, that's not the case. He's like, they went in he's like, they were professionals. They, they killed it. Like they played the song as well as they could. What the truth is like, who knows? And it doesn't really matter that much. It's just a great story. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Getting choked up about it. Just yeah, thinking about I, it. I, 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 <laughs> just thinking about what it must've been like in that moment. But, I but didn't yeah, expect us think, to start crying it during this uh, <laughs> interview. But I think really what the reality is, is that it's actually all true. And, you know, probably, yeah, I mean, they probably did play it better than maybe they're letting on, but there probably was this resistance to doing it because it's not what they were there to do. They wanted, I mean, this is a band that had been around a decade mm. at that point. 
they wanted to play their own music, but they knew that they had to do this in order to go forward. So, you know, so the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Bands on the East Coast seem to play a lot of cover songs, and I think there was one, you, you mentioned all the guitars. There was another story about Dee Snider. He'd been doing it in the clubs all, all the time, and of course, he always wanted nothing but a good time as well, and uh, I think Vito Brada was in the audience, and he, you know, if he was like arms crossed and just kind of like taking it all in, and Dee kind of took him to task. Can you kind of elaborate on that? I mean, Dee absolutely destroyed him. He, Vito Brada was like one of the big... He's done only like two or three interviews in the last 20 years. Like he did not weather being thrown on the dustbin and told that he played guitar too well. Like I think Mm. he kind of blew his mind. But yeah, he was there for that early scene. And so like, and he's very, like he's really funny. Like I wish like I could imitate his voice, but like just the fact that like they were apparently, and he says so in the book, like adjusted for inflation, the members of Twisted Sister were each making like, $300,000 a year playing covers. Like they were doing really, really well. It's kind of hard to imagine now. They were packing like 3,000 seaters four nights a week, you know? So they were kind of like rock stars, but not really rock stars because it wasn't their music. But Dee Snyder's thing was that he's very confrontational with the audience. Like he exhorts the audience. He demands adulation and enthusiasm from the audience and so like if he didn't like who you were he was like how you were acting if he thought he wasn't getting his due he was gonna like pick you out and just excoriate you and he did it like that was one of his things like that i think he did that like every night part of his shtick like you know drum solo and then i'm gonna destroy something <laughs> vito brado literally was there like he's this kid you know he's like 18 he's like loves twisted sisters like they're using this amp and that amp and i love this and but he's standing there with his arms crossed and yeah d snyder just like picked him out they're like this dude is not sufficiently animated and destroyed him but it, you know and and just was like listen look at this guy but what's kind of great about that story is that that night after the gig Vito and d meet again in the parking lot and d really is the one who sets Vito straight. And he's like, D, because Vito brought us like, I don't want to play covers. Blah, blah, blah. And, and D just grabs us like, look, you, you got to play in front of people. So you got to play cover. And Vito does that and gains a reputation and then finally forms White Lion. But it's really sort of through this weird interaction that D Snyder points Vito in the right, like points his ship in the right direction. Like, mm-hmm. go do some covers, dude. It'll be okay. And sends him on his way. And to this day, you know, apparently Vito still thanks D for like, you know, tearing him a new one and then sort of pointing him in the right direction. And I guess it worked out pretty well, you know. Okay, we're having some fun talking with Tom Bojor and Richard Beanstalk. 
They are the authors of Nothing But A Good Time, the uncensored history of the 80s hard rock explosion. And we will be right back. on the What Difference Does It Make podcast with Richard Beanstalk and Tom Beaujour. It felt like Major League Baseball in a way. And like all the players were interchanging. They were changing teams. You know, one guitarist would uh, run into someone else at 7-Eleven and like, hey, you know, we're looking for, uh, we, we need a vocalist. Guys would leave bands all the time. It was, the parts were constantly changing, trying to, to figure out the perfect formula that would create some sort of spark. Although you guys were on the East Coast, it seemed like it mostly happened on the West Coast. Like all these stories about interchangeable players happened on the West Coast. Is that the way you found it? Yeah, I think it's just by nature of the fact that the West Coast is such a, it's a very tight scene. Like there's not that much square footage where all of this is happening. And I think that's one of the reasons that the scene blossoms the way it does, especially in the early days. Yeah, you get so much crossover whether it's like the guys in, you know, Striper and Rat both being house bands at Gazzari's at the same time, or like CC DeVille trying out for Striper, but, you know, not liking, according to Michael Sweet, the color scheme that they were <laughs> going with. And obviously all the stuff with Slash and CC both trying out for Poison at the same time, and all just the in and out that happens with Guns N' Roses and LA Guns and that whole type of thing. But I think you see on the West Coast, all these guys... They're playing the same clubs. They're playing the same gigs. You know, you have the whole story of George Lynch and Jakey Lee trying out for the Slot and Ozzy's band after Randy Rhodes passes away. And it's a great story in the book because you have Ozzy and Sharon Osbourne talking about it. And you have George and Jake uh, in the story as well. And they're all giving their perspective on what really went down. And it's just a really sort of neat thing to see. But, you know, in that alone, you have Ozzy and you have Randy and then you have Dokken and then you have Rat because Jake was in Rat for a little while and then he's in Rough Cut. And then I think while George is trying out, Warren Demartini starts playing with Dokken a little bit. So it's like so many bands and artists are brought together just in that one story of two guys trying out for a band, you know, and I think you see that throughout the L.A. thing, especially in the early 80s when everyone's just trying whatever they can to see what'll hit, like all these guys are switching bands and, and playing with each other. And it's just a really sort of interesting sort of, you know, cross-contamination that's going on. Somebody did, and I can't remember who it was. You said they're all playing the same clubs, but you pointed out that there were bands that if they played the whiskey, they didn't play, was it the Roxy or the Troubadour? You were, you either played one club or the other. Yeah, I think that there was like a certain amount of time, like you couldn't play another show, you know, within two weeks or whatever the case may be, but which makes sense because it's like right down the street, you know, and like you're just hitting these same bands and it's like you have to have some sort of leg up. Steve Whiteman of uh, Kicks, who said they, that they were playing six nights a week, five sets a night. Was that, it was just a different mentality on the East, East versus West? The East, Coast, the East Coast cover scene, which was something that I learned about researching this book because I was a little too young to catch it. It kind of collapsed when the drinking age changed on the East Coast. Yeah. When it went to 19 and then 21, you lost a large part of this audience. But the East Coast was, that was the culture. You know, Cinderella, um, I forget the name of the band that they were, but you know, Tom Kiefer from Cinderella was in a cover band. Kicks were doing mainly covers. They would play like whole ACDC albums. And it was a much different 
work ethic and it was just and it was kind of a trap too you know the guys in twisted sister discussed this because you're making a lot of money and you're being treated like a rock star but you're not a rock star you're playing other people's music so it really was this thing where like if you got too sucked into that world and it happened to twisted sister it took them a decade to get signed because they had been pegged as a as a cover band they had to go to england you know and then come back i mean it's interesting when poison moves from Pennsylvania to LA and even they were younger, but they'd been doing covers too. They get to LA and Ricky Rocket says in our book, you know, he's like, we didn't understand how this was supposed to work. Like bands would play once a month, you know, for 45 minutes. And like, we're used to playing five nights a week to make money. So, you know, the guys in poison because they brought their East coast work ethic with them, they would like drive far out into the inland empire and do covers like in Covina and stuff because, and, and make money there and then come back they would just go far enough that they weren't like they were under the radar, but it definitely was a different culture that said back in the seventies, you know, bands like Van Halen started as a cover band, you know, then they were doing covers at Gazzari's. But by that time, by the eighties, like the Los Angeles thing had evolved beyond that. I think it was frowned upon to do that, but on the East coast, people were like, you know, doing it. And again, making a living being musicians, which the guys on the West coast were not, you know, the guys right. in Motley Crue and Rat and stuff were not making a living being musicians until they were signed. They were living off strippers and stuff. So it was a completely different culture. Was your introduction to for both of you, since you're both East Coast guys, um, seeing the film Decline of Western Civ, the metal years? That was huge. That was, yeah. okay, yeah. I mean, it was an introduction to a certain part of that world that you didn't, you know, I mean, that was that came out in 1988. So you didn't you didn't necessarily see that sort of underbelly reflected on MTV or anything or anything like that. You basically just saw the people that had, you know, won in that world, your poisons and, and your guns and roses and all that. And that had now moved beyond that. I remember everybody talking about that movie, you know, when it came out and especially when you'd start seeing it on TV, because the, the guys that didn't make it and wannabes quote unquote, you know, that was sort of the first exposure. I think most people who didn't grow up on the West coast ever saw to that, that side of the coin. And it makes you realize like, you know, the bands that, and we've talked about this a lot, like in the last couple of weeks. And I think Rich agrees, like part of the going back to your thing about people changing bands and switching this guy and that one, the bands that make it in this story are the ones who through sometimes ruthlessness and firing one guy, cause he's not cutting it or, or just through persistence and the willingness to keep switching people out when they make it is when they suddenly have this unit that actually has this, I mean, it's a cliche, but that has chemistry, but that translates when you see a band in a video or hear a band on a record that has a real vibe going on of like four, five people with a common vision who look good together. You know, there's probably some kind of lizard brain, animal pheromonal, you know, thing of like these people belong together. And those are the bands that end up, transcending and getting big like that's true of guns and roses it's true of poison it's true of rat it's like these five guys is what works together and you switch someone out and maybe the whole story is different it's funny one of the comments made and i just rewatched the film but one of the comments made by the band london was that they felt that they were a breeding ground they never you know made it to the next level but they were a breeding ground for other band members who then became successful with other bands after them mm-hmm yeah, I mean, we, we spoke to the person who says that in the movie is, is Lizzie Gray, yeah. who is sort of the main guy in London. And 
we spoke to him a few times for the book. He unfortunately passed away since then. But he had, I mean, he has, his story is a tough story. I mean, he, the way he, he said it to me during the interview, he calls himself basically like King Midas in reverse. But that's really the way he sees his life because he starts out in a band, I mean, with Nikki Six, you know, and like, which is pretty good luck. And he, you know, co-writes the song Public Enemy Number no. One, which is on Too Fast for Love. And then, you know, Blackie Lawless is in London and he goes on to bigger things. And then later on, Fred Curry, who then winds up in Cinderella. And obviously, Izzy Stradlin uh, is in London for a while. Steven Adler is sort of in London for a little while. So all these guys pass through the ranks. And I'm sure also in the early 80s, late 70s on the Sunset Strip scene, like he probably feels like a rock star because he's probably treated that way because uh, they're a big deal at that time. You know, and, and he calls it a breeding ground for all these other guys that went on to bigger things. I mean, I think in some ways that's unfortunately like he's sort of overestimating it. Like the, they just happen to pass through this band. I don't know if the fact that they were in this <laughs> band is what, you know, sets them on their path yeah. to glory. You know, one of the things that I think was important about having him in the book is that even beyond the fact that he sort of shared band space with all these guys who went on to big things is that he's just very indicative of a lot of these bands that never made it out of L.A. and off the strip, but that are so important to the scene and to the story because there's thousands of these bands and, you know, by telling at least a few of their stories, you're, you're sort of telling all their stories in a way, or at least one aspect mm -hmm. of the story, because not everybody makes it, you know, almost no one makes it to go back to what Tom was saying, like, it takes a very unique combination of people and also a very unique type of person to rise above the sort of the how many bands there are and to really stand out. And that's what makes the guys that do make it so special. And I don't know, like we've actually, Rich, this is something we'll discuss. Probably I want to discuss it with you off the air too for at least three hours on a phone call. <laughs> There's like a chicken and the egg thing because clearly even, and even on the East Coast, you in our story with, with Skid Row, you've got Dave Snake Sabo, like she's trying to join Cinderella. He's doing this, he's doing that. All of the people in this book who make it, which is the, the people in this book because that's why we're writing about them, have this totally almost panicked, sense of urgency like wild mcbrown it's like i was who's in doc and he's like i was getting old man i was 22 yeah. you know like the people who made it had this sense of the clock ticking and that's why the genealogies of these bands i think get so complicated is like steven adler is in london and he's like nope not this is not right i'm out you know like people were jumping in and out because yeah. they really felt like i gotta find the right thing and i don't have a lot of time like i don't think any of them conceived of being 25. Like they're like, I'll be dead by then. I got to be signed now. And so like they're moving, you know, these things are switching. This is probably happening in like six week increments, which is why the guns and roses story was like, which rich told admirably is so complicated is because people are in and out like, Nope, not right. Not right. Not yeah. right. It's like, and it's, it's moving fast because these guys feel a real, like, yeah, total urgency to find the right situation. And they'll, they'll, they'll quit your band in two seconds. Mick Mars was like an elder statesman. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you know, he's, he's been kicking it around for a long time. And what, uh, what'd you get, what'd you get from him? Mick Mars is, is an incredible human being. I think that Tom, <laughs> Tom and I both, I think, love Mick Mars, you know, because we love that music and like, and he's just such an unusual person and just an, yeah, such an outlier. Cause he's like 35 when he joins Motley Crue and like Tommy Lee's probably 18, mm -hmm. you know, like he literally could like almost be his father. 
And he's also such an odd character. And he's such a, I mean, he's really been through the shit, you know, when, when he first <laughs> appears in the book in the seventies and he's living in the South Bay and he's sort of in this whole world with like Don Dockin and all those guys. And he's like living in some crappy apartment, but he basically lives in a corner of the apartment and has used his martial cabinets to like create other walls. And like, that's his little space. And you get the sense that like, this is not the first time he has lived that way. Mm. And he has, is probably thinking that's the way he's going to live the rest of his life. You know, yeah, he's, he's in his thirties, but like what Tom said about Mick Brown, like Mick Brown makes the comment earlier on when he first meets Don Dockin, who he winds up joining forces with, like, he talks about how he thinks Don Dockin is like ancient. Like he can't believe this dude is still out there playing. And Don Dockin's probably like 23 years old or something, <laughs> you know, but it like blows wild Mick Brown's mind that this guy's still out there. So a guy like Mick Mars, kudos to him that he's just like, he's like, I'm going to do this and I'm not going to be Bob Deal anymore. I'm going to be Mick Mars, you know, and I'm going to dye my hair blue, black. And like, this is it. And like, and also kudos to Nikki Six who meets this dude who's, certainly super creepy when he shows up at the door and like, you know, has the ad loud, rude, aggressive guitarist. And Nikki six, who's like 21 is like, this is the dude, you know, and he's not a shredder. He's not a flashy guy. He's not what these other bands were looking for, but Nikki sees something in him. And Nikki is a hundred percent right in what he sees. Yeah. Like Nikki will often refer to it. Like he's, has he ever referred in an interview with you? He'll like describe McMars is a troll. <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, we hired this weird troll. Yeah. And it's like, that really is. And even and when he picks Vince Neil as the singer, Vince Neil is not the most, like, vocally agile of all. But, like, that really was, like, Nikki Six was like, yeah, this guy, this guy, and this guy. And no one else could have put that puzzle together, I don't think. Yeah. Like, Tommy Lee is the really the only other guy in the band that is the obvious choice for that position, you know. About chemistry, Tom, about the band having chemistry, because some of them, not Motley Crue, but some of these other bands uh, that were playing on the strip, the ones that didn't make it, some of them that had moderate success, a lot of them were interchangeable. I hate to, I hate to say that, but the band, like the chemistry within the members of the bands, you know, they were, they were good, you know, they were all good, they all had talent, but... You know, I never yeah. thought about it in those terms before that it's, the band's having chemistry. And it's not only musical, success. it was, uh, it's fashion wise as well. It's like guys in poison are like, okay, this is, this is going to be our look like Striper. You touched on Striper, you know, we're, we're, this is what, <laughs> this is what we're going to wear. Not everyone was on board with, uh, with fashion choices. Yeah. I think it's like Michael Sweet of Striper. And it's funny because it's so deadpan the way he says it about when they first found CC DeVille. He's like, yeah, I mean, we were yellow and black and CC was more like, you know, blue and pink. <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, maybe that was all it really took. And like they talk about Michael Sweet, his drummer, uh, who was his brother, Robert Sweet, like wanted CC to like pinstripe his guitars yellow and black. And like CC wasn't going to do that to his prized BC Rich or whatever. Like, it's, and that's enough to be like, see ya. I'll mm -hmm. go on to the next thing. But yeah, these guys had, you know, a very clear idea of what they wanted to look like and how they were going to present themselves. And that's not something that came once the bands were signed. That's partly what got them signed. You know, Striper was in yellow and black before they were even called Striper. And they talk about how their entire rehearsal studio was pinstriped yellow and black. And you can see that there's a photo of it in the book. And like, you know, they would wear these like leg warmers and they would spray paint them yellow and black. And like they they would just reek of paint all the time. Like, you know, they couldn't get the smell off of them. 
you know, and Poison 2, all these bands, like, they figured that out on their own. Like, Wasp built all their stage stuff and, and designed their clothes, like, in a garage. And so by the time they got to the major labels, like, the look was already there, and the sound was usually there, too. So it wasn't like this was something that was created after the fact. Like, they did it all on their own, and then finally the larger culture jumped on board. You guys did a good, really nice job of painting the picture of these bands, you know, in with the the record executives and having to work harder and, you know, create more demos and, you know, not getting signed yet. And, you know, I think it, it painted a sympathetic picture of bands trying to make it. And also I think of the stakes, you know, like this was like adult time, you know, these major labels when they were signing these bands, I mean, with some exceptions where they, you know, like, in our book, Faster Pussycat, who are, we both love is sort of signed like it's on a dare. But <laughs> yeah, these bands were, they had no ambivalence about success and they were willing to work really hard. And there was a tremendous amount at stake. So like when you look at these bands being told to write more demos to get signed, or as is the case with Warrant, the guitar players being benched, you know, in the studio because the producer, Bo Hill, doesn't think that they're cutting the mustard or things like that are being told like Warrant, Again, being told you don't have a single, you know, and having him having to go write cherry pie. If you got it right, you could sell 5 million records. You know, like if you got it right, the upside was just so big that it paid to really labor it, you know, get the right guys, get the right songs, get the right producer, this, that, the other thing. And to put the work in because you're spending half a million. It's, it's like it's metrics that don't even exist for rock bands anymore. That's why a producer cannot be nice and you can tell a band go home and write more songs and we may and maybe we sign on you and maybe we won't or like because when all of the things line up, a lot of people are going to get rich, including the guys in the band. So I think it was they were willing to be made to work hard because they knew that the rewards could be so great if they did, in fact, do it right. Then also came a time where it was it kind of became cookie cutter, and that was kind of the end of the this era is when people were starting to like this is this is what you need to do this is the sound this is the sound until suddenly it's not the sound anymore and you know bands that tried to pivot it was it's kind of hard because bands that tried to create something new didn't really succeed because they weren't doing the old sound or bands that tried to do the same thing that wasn't working as well it it kind of had like a, a time limit on it an expiration date. Yeah, I think that that's a good observation. And I think one of the stories I like in the book, because when you get to the end of this era, I mean, it's very easy to talk about grunge and Nirvana and all this stuff and and that and how that helped to signal the end of this. But there's a whole section of the book where we go into the recording of a few of these sort of latter era records, uh, the first Bang Tango record, the first Tough record, the first Pretty Boy Floyd record, all those records were actually done by the same producer, a guy named Howard Benson, who is now 
incredibly successful. He went on to do My Chemical Romance and All American Rejects and work with Kelly Clarkson. He has Grammys. He has lots of multi-platinum records to his name. At the beginning of his career, he does these three bands pretty close to one another. And we talked to him and we talked to all the bands as well. And you do, you hear a little bit about this fact that like, yeah, these bands are, I mean, their, their influences are the bands that came three years before them. So they're influenced by Motley Crue and, you know, Rat and all and Poison. And that, those are bands that are still in the prime of their careers or maybe, you know, are just hitting the prime of their careers. So you're, you're in this really sort of tight loop of influence, which partly contributes to, I think, kind of the cookie cutterness of the bands. But then also it's an interesting perspective from Howard Benson, because here's a guy who is now super successful and talented producer. And he is admitting that, you know, what he was doing back then was actually it wasn't just the bands trying to ape the sound of the bands that they liked. He was trying to ape the sound of the producers of the time. So he's like, I was basically just trying to make a production that sounds like Tom Werman or it sounds like Bo Hill or Michael Wagner because he didn't know any better. He was, he was really green. And he's like, this is what the labels wanted to what Tom was saying. There was a lot of money involved. These are all major label records and these are all debut records. So he wants to deliver a hit. And he's going to deliver a hit by delivering a record that sounds like other records that are hits. And so that's, I think, another part of what maybe hastens the end of this music, even before grunge comes in, is that everybody from the artist on down or on up, however you want to look at it, is really concerned with having a hit and keeping their career going. And, uh, And sometimes they think the easiest way to do that is to just sound like what's already out there. Definitely. I mean, because we always we frequently discuss and drill into like the end of the era. It wasn't like grunge did come along and replace this music, but it wasn't like it didn't knock out a champ in its prime. You know what I mean? Like it didn't like this was not 1987 or eight or nine. Even there were some years where it would have been significantly. And that's probably why, you know, Soundgarden had been around. But by the time you get to 9091, the bands are not doing their best work. So I think that the, the music, regardless of what had come along, was vulnerable and that, you know, a decade had, had gone. And, and, you know, usually a movement gets like seven years. So it had done pretty well for itself. What was different is that it got completely canceled. You know, and that's sort of like the fascinating thing about this. It's not like that it fell out of favor and then it was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I still like Warrant, but I'm really more into Soundgarden. It was like, oh, no, no. And, you know, people are like sticking their Warrant records underneath their beds. Like there was a complete shift. And the people who had worked in this industry, the producers, the bands, et cetera, they were untouchable. And that was, I feel a little unwarranted, but like, you know, it, but the, it, that was what was strange. It wasn't that this music had run its course. It's that once it had run its course, it was like just completely unpermissible to say that you'd like it or been involved with it yeah. for a decade. Yeah. I, I can't think of another genre. I mean, even like disco, people love disco in, in the eighties and that was always kind of, you know, sometimes it was, you couldn't say that you like disco music, but it was always a part of pop music. But yeah, this, this genre and by the way, what do you call that? You, I think at the beginning you said it. You can call it. You say glam metal, metal, glam metal if you must, hair metal if you're itching for a fight. What, what do you guys call it? I, I mean, when we're talking to each other, like we we actually call it all these things. Like it's all interchangeable: hard rock, hair metal, 
glam metal. And like we, I mean, even when we do these interviews, we use all the terms. I think when it came to the the title of the book, the subtitle, you know, it, there was a conscious effort to not call it hair metal because yeah. it, it's derogatory, at least it, certainly to the bands who are in the book and to go through this whole process and to get these artists to open up to us about their entire lives and their careers and their creative process and all that. And then just throw a term on the cover of the book that we know none of them are comfortable with or that agree with in terms of how their music is seen would have been insulting to them. So, you know, so that, that was one consideration. Another being that I think that it's also a limiting term you know because the book says 80s hard rock on it because this is the hard rock of the 80s like Mm -hmm. there's no other hard rock sound really in the 1980s than than this one there's metal and there's you know indie rock or whatever but if you were playing like the type of rock and roll that was big in the 70s or whatever like in the 80s it sounded like this stuff like that's what it was so yeah like fog hat of the 80s was this <laughs> yeah like seriously though yeah, like, and, yeah. Was there, there wasn't something else going on yeah. yeah this is what it was i understand why it's seen as derogatory but it conjures up something a little bit different while the sound might be interchangeable the look of a hair band might be a little more glam than a you know straight ahead rock and roll band it's true but you know something that we've we say and it's, it's true is that it, the period of really egregious like bright colors and giant hair and, and all that stuff is actually pretty short. It's like really like Twisted Sister through the first Poison record. And then as soon as Guns N' Roses comes along, which is 86, the dudes in the bands, I think not all of them were like super psyched that they had to wear all of this stuff because that was what was the norm at this point. Guns N' Roses comes along, cowboy boots, jeans, t-shirts, and everybody else is like, we're in. And there's a site, like every band changes the way they look. Yeah. So it was really a short period of time where you have Cinderella and you see their first album cover and the Motley Crue with the really, the Dayglow Theater of Pain stuff. And like, because it's so iconic, it ends up like being attached to the whole era, but doesn't actually, that look does not continue throughout the entire era. Yeah, once people saw Guns N' Roses, they're like, that this is a much easier way to go. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of work to keep up that whole glam thing. Yeah. The one subject that really wasn't touched on or wasn't represented too much are, are the women in this scene. Um, did you try and reach out to like, uh, you know, Tani Katane or, or Bobby Brown or, you know, like you watch the metal years and you women were all over the place. And they were, as you say, there was no there's no hit records without women. They weren't traded uh, that fairly back then. Was yeah, there a scene did. for them like like a GTO type scene or or something like that? Well, I think that there was even more than that, I think. And, you know, that's why we made the point, like Lita Ford's in the, in the book, um, and she gave a great interview, but also we, we follow the whole Vixen story throughout the book. And I think that that was an important one to do. And Tom spoke to all the, the members of, of Vixen for that and, and framed it in a really instructive way, I think, because here's a band that has some success and it's an all-female band. They have their own unique perspective and their own unique experience, which I'll let Tom speak to since he really followed that thread. Uh, but then we also, we speak to like Madame X, which was Roxy and Maxine Petrucci. But beyond that, we there's also Sharon Osbourne's in the book. There's people at the labels, some of the, you know, the, the women at Electra that was in the head of their video department talks about 
doing the looks the kill video with Motley Crue and doing, you know, faster pussycat video where they had Russ Myers, the director. And so you have these people, we spoke to the woman who was the quote unquote rack girl with wasp, which was basically the woman on stage topless who would get decapitated during the show. And like, you know, and so all of these people, we, we, get their perspective on what it was like to be a woman in this scene. And, you know, some of these people, Sharon Osbourne is going to have a different perspective than the rack girl because Sharon Osbourne was in a position of power. And so she didn't have to worry about any of this shit. Like if anything, people were scared of her, you know, so you do get a lot of different perspectives from, from these women. And, And really what it all comes down to is, what position of power you held in the industry. And that was really how well or not well you were treated. Members of Vixen end up in an all-female band because they're not being accepted. Shara uh, Ross was the bass player, and she, you know, she's a great bass player. She was doing like sessions, played with Helen Reddy and stuff. She decides she wants to get in a band, and she's calling for auditions. And she'll call like numbers in the paper, and the the guy bands are like, "There's no way, like you're not even coming to the audition." Like they're so. The reason I don't think we went to sort of like the quote unquote video vixens and stuff like that, because. Or even the fans, like, you know, the, the ones that bring the groceries to they're supporting these guys. I mean, it's funny because we definitely cover it. I don't know if those people would really want like those, like want to talk about it now, <laughs> you know, the women in our book are the ones who are like, yeah, man, these bands, they had like, you know, women bringing them the groceries. I don't know what those like. So it's, I sort of, I think everyone is more empowered. You know, we do also talk to um, Vicki Hamilton who manages throughout the book, Faster Pussycat Guns Mm -hmm. and Roses. She has a hand in poison and who gets, I think she's the one person who really might get short shrift because of her gender. Like she never ends up really managing a band. Like when, once they get to the next level. I can't really give you an answer. I just, I thought that probably that would just get sad. You know, all those people are acknowledged. Bobby Brown is acknowledged. You know, there's one sort of like slightly sad scene in the book where we talked to a woman named uh, Heidi Margot Richmond, and she was a costume designer for like Warren and all these other bands and um, super like highly intelligent, like I think has a law degree, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, she's doing this stuff and she's at a warrant, the warrant photo shoot for Cherry Pie. And um, there's a picture in the back of the cherry pie CD thing where there's a car and the woman who's on the cover with the 
roller skates, you don't actually see her, but like you see her kind of on her knees and she's supposed to be, I guess, I don't know what the right best word is. Uh, performing or <laughs> we get the idea. Or, yeah. I'm Jerry Dixon, the bass player in the band. Oh, proper. And, like it's not the woman on the cover and it's not Bobby Brown. And you know, there's a story of like the, the woman who had been hired to do it. The model shows up and like, she's gained like 30 pounds since the audition. So they send her packing and they're like, Heidi, would you do this? And like, so Heidi actually is, you see her legs in the photo and like, I don't know. I, I think that that's an important scene to have in there and it's like mildly funny, but it's also like, to me, that was almost enough. It's like, you're like when you start like really like extrapolating the experience of the woman who shows up in the, at the, at the video shoot to be in the thing as the person performing fellatio on the bass player and gets sent home because she gained too much weight. And it's like, that's real. You know what I mean? That's, and I'm sure that weird things like that happen with like all kinds of photo shoots for these bands and videos and stuff. We sort of use that as like maybe a symbolic or like, well, you can build out from there of like everything that was going on with that in the same way that we don't really get excessively prurient with like groupy stuff because like there's a couple of them, but really when you, it's all the same story, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. Do you agree, Rich? <laughs> Which is like shut up. Tom. I know it's a tough topic. <laughs> no, I think yeah, I think that's that's a discussion that we that we had about this stuff. It's like how deep into it do you want to go, and also how 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 much are you just telling the same story over and over? It's like you you have to give people an idea. You tell them a few of these stories, and they're sort of indicative of what's going on overall but i will say with with any of the women that we did speak to like we we asked them these types of questions a lot of them didn't when they look back at that time like it wasn't something that was in the front of their mind and maybe that also speaks to some of the negativity of the time because it wasn't even something they thought about that much because it was just the way the world was mm -hmm. unfortunately you know not in a good way so they didn't some of them didn't really have that much to say about it beyond just telling you what had happened to them. And I think just from hearing their experience, like you can draw conclusions about what it must've been like to exist in that world as a woman at that time. Yeah, I mean, going back to the beginning of our discussion, the woman who was the head of Vit for videos at Electra at the time of the Motley Crue looks like kale video being made where, you know, women are being corralled into cages. Robinson is a woman. And we talked to her now and she's, you know, she, she, I don't think she's just like, oh, I'm really psyched that that video is the way it is. I don't think she wants to go. Yeah. But at the same time, she was doing her job. She had a really good gig at a, a record label. She was doing a thing that's, she's selling a record, making a record that they're trying to sell to 13 year old boys, you know, like, so it gets, it gets complex, but it, it, it is more about telling what, how their, what their experience was at the time than like, you know, we can all sit here and take it apart. We're all living in 2021. So we all know that things have evolved, but yeah. I'm more interested. We were more interested in like, what were you thinking then? And I think her, the woman who did the looks a kill video, that was, I think that was actually her first, the first video she did as the head of the video department and her real big takeaway. Cause she was in her early twenties at the time is that she was scared to death of Mick Mars. Like she just thought, well, we all were. thought he was the scariest looking dude she'd ever met. Like he probably wasn't saying much either. And like, that's what she remembers most of it. She's like, this is a scary, scary dude, you know? So like, you know, you ask them what they remember and they tell you, and that's, and that's what you have to work with. Well, he was also older 
and the others <laughs> right. were his were her more of her contemporaries, I yeah. guess. He, he still terrifies he really doesn't, me. Doesn't talk like he doesn't talk right. either. <laughs> That's he, his thing. He, he, he's a guy like you could probably, if you didn't speak to him, like you could be in a room with him for like an hour, <laughs> and not a word would be said. He's he he, he he plays it close to the vest, McMark. But everyone knows he's in the room. You could doesn't need to say anything. <laughs> presence. You know he's there. Yeah. I guess it, well, it kind of ends in a happy way in that um, we all get older and we remember the bands that we saw back when we were kids and we want to see them again. And now we have a little bit more money and unfortunately 2020 happened, but Molly Crew and Poison, I mean, these guys are playing stadiums again. And, you know, it, have you gone to revival shows? Do you enjoy going to see bands that you saw 20, 30 years ago? Absolutely. I mean, I go all the time, like to big and small ones, whether it's, you know, Poison in an arena or, you know, Guns N' Roses in a stadium or Faster Pussycat in a club. Like, it's fun to see this stuff. <laughs> and, you know, there's diff- there's varying levels of what's going on, whether it's, and we go into this in the book, like you have these bands where it's just one guy from, you know, the sort of glory years. And now yeah. sometimes it's it's no guys from the glory years, but and how important it is, like, well, are you selling at this point the guys in the band, or are you selling the logo, or are you selling a song? Like, what are people really for? But It's baseball see, again. <laughs> yeah, but I think um, what you see with the ones who are still at the top, first and foremost, it's the songs, and it's also usually the bands that were at the top back in the day. But what helps is having as many of the original guys as possible. And especially if it's a band like Poison, where all four of the guys were really marketed as personalities. If you can keep those personalities there 30, 40 years later, you're going to have a better shot at this thing. But yeah, I mean, overall, like a lot of these bands are doing as well, or in some cases better than they were back then, even if they're playing smaller places. Like Tracy Guns, I think is one guy who says, you know, he's actually doing better financially in 2020 than he was back in the days when they were playing arenas because back in those days you have a major label that has their hand in your pocket and you have a huge entourage and you have crew and you have all these tour buses and you have trucks carrying all this stuff and like there's all this other money going out the door whereas now it's like you have your guitar and your fly dates and you know, and probably one or two crew guys and not your, you know, a smaller label, if any label, and you don't have the same overhead and like things are good for a lot of these bands. And it's much more sustained. It's much more sustainable. Yeah. It's funny. Cher Ross, who, who I'll email back and forth from, she's the bass player in Vixen. She's like, dude, I don't even bring a bass. She's <laughs> like, it's like, she does these fly dates and she's a realtor in Florida. And then they do the fly <laughs> dates on the weekends. She brings her strap. So like she knows it. And like, there's a base there and it's great. And it's a sustainable way to do this, like touring. I mean, I've done it a little, Rich has done it a little, it's brutal. And even when you're a popular band, filling the seats on a Tuesday, Wednesday or Monday night sucks. Mm -hmm. So these guys are actually able to have sort of normal lives. You know, they're all between 50 and 60. Maybe some of them are 65, but like that, and you know, a lot of them. Mick Mars is 88. More re- <laughs> <laughs> and they got their lives back together more recently. So that some of them have young kids and they're really able to have their cake and eat it too a little bit. And they're all in a really good place. And what I mean, sort of in closing, and it's one thing that Rich and I were lucky we did this book when we did, because everybody's really in a good headspace. Mm-hmm. You know, the people you talk to right now, they're proud of their sort of, 
contribution. They're relieved that they've come out of the wilderness. They're starting to have this real sense that the music that they created is being like accepted as part of classic rock, you know, and that their era is like being accepted as like important. And so they're all genuinely like enthusiastic about talking about it and sort of not in a particularly bitter or dejected place at all. Like if we had tried to do this book in 1998, it would have been a dour, yeah, right? Too know, soon. It would have been like no good time mm. at all. <laughs> like that or something yeah. like that. No, no, bad no, time. Bad time. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I can guarantee that you tried to reach out to Axel. Did he have, does he have an official <laughs> statement? I would say we've been asked this question. I don't even actually remember if we tried to reach out to him. I think that we, we may have once, but we also may not have. Um, <laughs> it, it was a foregone conclusion that he was not going to take part in this book, which is fine. So same with like a, a John Bon Jovi. There were some guys that you knew have put this time behind them and moved on totally their prerogative, you know, and that's fine if they want to do it that way. So we just told the story in the best way that we could. I spent a lot of time in the early to mid eighties on the strip. So I knew these bands, I watched them, I handed out flyers. I, I dated them. Oh yeah. So some of these that, that <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we totally would interview you. For I know. Band. I'm back and no. <laughs> that's why this was so. That's why this was such a fun read for me. And some of these bands, like I was telling Dave as I was reading it, uh, Tammy down. I I was at the Troubadour the day that he started. He's the lighting guy, right? Yeah. He had just moved here. He got this job, and I I met him. That I was there with a boyfriend who was you know about to play there, and I met him, and we were just chatting and that was i mean we never became friendly or anything but you know i'd see him wow. around yeah. yeah holly did you hang out in the rainbow parking lot <laughs> <laughs> i did it was such a long time ago obviously but i don't even remember making the connection that i was too young to get in mm-hmm. so <laughs> to, to the inside it was yeah, happening in the parking lot you're just there because people were there yeah like inside yeah. was like mcmars you know yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be around him <laughs> the elderly <laughs> this is the real proof of why we did this book because like we're like four years into it and you know and like you start talking you're you're like oh i met tammy down at when he was doing lights at the troubadour and both rich and i are like this we're like i have 10 questions that i could just yeah yeah. Yeah. talk to right now yeah Yeah. oh well i've seen guns and roses at the troubadour there you go yeah yeah this is for the paperback when this when the paperback comes (laughs) out at the troubadour like were you What's your memory of it? Do you like, were you like, whoa, this is the best band ever? Like, were they exceedingly good or were you just like, you don't even remember? <laughs> well, here's my frame of mind. I'm, I've always been a fan, but here's my frame of mind. And you didn't, it, this, this wasn't mentioned. The guy I was dating at the time was a drummer and he was playing with Duff when Duff had just moved here. So Duff was actually in a band. He didn't come down here and immediately joined Guns N' Roses. He'd been playing, I guess. So he was playing in a band with the guy I was dating at the time. And then he left. And he left to start playing with Guns N' Roses. This is my memory of it, uh, Guns N' Roses. And I guess to answer your question, yeah, I knew they had something. They had the the, the chemistry. And they had, obviously, the, the talent. And they were just a little bit different. So, yeah, you kind of knew they, were, they had the presence, everything. But my first you know, thought about that as well. This is the guy who left, you know, left the, the guy, left the band right. of the guy I was dating and he never made it. Right. right. You know, so it's hard to separate. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. 
Totally. Wow. Now I appreciate them as a band. It really brought back a lot. I mean, seeing these pe- your descriptions of some of the people who were interviewed talking about the flyers and, you know, posting them and then having them papered over and posting them again. I, you know, you did I did that. And I remember, you know, the bands that I would see out there, like Warrant and Skid Row and all those bands, you know, that's why it's, it was, it's just was interesting to read all your interviews with them because I was there at the time as a fan. I had a little bit behind the scenes, but it really kind of filled in the gaps for me. It was really interesting and fun. Mission okay. accomplished. Though. Yeah, I'm glad that we could do that for <laughs> yeah. you. There you go. And so thank you. <laughs> as a fan and as a, yeah. yeah. I can't believe sure. you kept the lid on that for like, like seven I know, for an hour. Minutes. Yeah, right? <laughs> we like to bury the lead over here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, because it's not about, it wasn't about me. It was about you guys and your book. <laughs> This music is about all of us. I think that's the thing. Yes, exactly. Yes, everyone's got their own unique story. All right. So, Holly, I learned a lot about you. (laughs) More than you probably wanted to know. That's why we do this is kind of dig up those uh, things that were in the closet. Now we're taking them out. What do we got here? Oh, we got Holly passing out flyers and and (laughs) dating rock stars. And that's... A lot of fun. Actually, I was fun to see Tom and Richard's eyes pop out when they realized that you were one of these these people that uh, were were on the Sunset Strip and living that rock and roll lifestyle. Hanging out. It was a, yeah, it was a lot of fun. That's why it was particularly fun to read this book. It was a great. Um, I mean, I think it's a good going to be a good read for any fan of of rock and roll, especially from the eighties. But it was particularly fun for me because that was my era. And yeah, I knew some of these bands and you know the people involved. So it was it was a lot of fun and I had a blast talking to them. Yeah, you were at the cat house, right? You were (laughs) hanging out with Ricky Rackman? Yeah. (laughs) Long before he was Ricky Rockman. He was (sighs) just a promoter, a club promoter. That is spectacular. Oh my God. Love it. Okay. Well thanks so much for sharing that with us, Holly. (laughs) We're gonna have to, you're gonna have to share some of your deep dark secrets. What, what one day we'll uh, when we can get together again. It's been a while since I've seen you. Hopefully one day I will see you in person. We will share some drinks on the Sunset Strip, maybe at the Rainbow. That would be nice. Yeah. And man, yeah, that would be a lot of fun. I would love that. Let's go to the Rainbow and just uh, okay. spill the beans. <laughs> okay, you gotta have some. You gotta come up with some stories too. Oh, wonderful! Great. I'm gonna have to figure something out. All right. Well, please tell us about social media. I want people to find us on social media. Okay. We, we want people to find us on social media. So please check us out on Facebook at uh, What Difference Does It Make Podcast, on Instagram and Twitter, WDDIM Podcast, and and on our YouTube channel, which you will find lots of stuff. And I will post uh, some outtakes from this fun interview. Yes. So uh, check us out at What Difference Does It Make on YouTube. Happy March Metal Month. What is it? March March Metal Metal Madness. March Metal Madness. That's right. It is is madness this month. So March Metal Madness. Rock it. Yeah, it's a full run, a full month of rock and roll. Oh, I love it. This is a fun podcast. We should keep doing this. We should keep doing this. All right. So I'll see you here next week. Sounds good. All right. So until next time, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 